0: Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Kali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design.
1: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 390.
0: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 390 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy winning producer, studio owner, archivist, Steve Rosenthal, the man behind the magic shop in New York who's worked on projects by Woody Guthrie, Les Paul, Blondie, David Bowie, Foo Fighters, and Errol Garner, to name a few. And Steve has had quite an impact on a number of people, a few of which have been here on this show as guests. We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about all kinds of things. This is a two-part interview. So you're about to dive into part one, of course. You'll have to stand by for part two for next week, but very much looking forward to having him on. I have heard his name time and time again and heard a number of great things. So it was a great pleasure to get to speak with him and talk about his journey. So Steve Rosenthal coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about billing. Obviously without billing people, for our services, we don't get paid. You'd be surprised at the number of people that are disorganized in this area and they forget to bill people. And then they realize it sometimes way too late in the game. And it can be embarrassing when you're following up and you say, hey, I was supposed to bill you like nine months ago and I forgot what I owe you. Do you remember? And it's it just comes off unprofessional. And it also causes your cash flow to suffer. While billing is not the most exciting thing to do, it's a necessary thing to do if you want to keep operating as an audio professional. You know, and this is mostly speaking to those that are freelancers. If you've got a day gig or where you're uh, on somebody's payroll, it's not obviously an issue. For those of you that are in charge of your own billing, this is for your benefit. Let's talk about some do's and don'ts. Uh, When you get a check from somebody, yes, people still send checks, believe it or not. Sometimes those checks are gonna have expiration dates. Don't let those checks sit around. Get those deposited in your account as soon as you can. If you get a check from somebody, first thing you do, make sure they've spelled your name correctly or make sure the the amount is correct. Don't just cut open that envelope and kind of peek in and go, ooh, yeah, I got paid and look at the number. Look at not only the number, Look at the spelling of your name. Make sure that if you've got a business name, did they spell the business name right? If not, that's your first order of business. You gotta make sure that the check is correct. Now, many of us these days are getting paid by, you know, services like PayPal and Stripe and Venmo and all those variations of that concept. So it's not a big deal. Now, before you get paid, you gotta invoice somebody. When you are done with a job, the first thing you gotta do is make sure you make time to invoice. Document what it is you're invoicing them for, obviously. You don't want to be vague. You want to include relevant uh, dates, times, uh, amounts, of course, you know if you're charging per hour or whatever. And leading up to that invoice, you want to have either started that invoice ahead of time, so you're tracking what it is you're doing, because some projects kind of go on for a bit. You don't wanna get down the road where you've been working for a couple weeks on a project and you haven't billed for it and forget the dates and the times uh, because then it becomes inaccurate and then there can be contention between you and the client about, well, wait a minute, we didn't work on Wednesday at four. Oh, that's right. Oh, I went to go get my kid at that time. Oh, right, sorry. You wanna be as accurate as you can. The other thing to consider too is whether or not you're comfortable getting paid over the services I mentioned, like the PayPals of the world, because those services take a percentage. Now, I personally don't have a problem with it. You know, it it's a convenience. It's uh, something that the client feels comfortable with, and it ensures that I get paid in a timely manner. So to me, it's the cost of doing business, and I just, I'm fine with it. You know, a few bucks here and there. Yeah, I know it adds up, but you have to Come to that conclusion on your own, and if you're not, then you got to make uh, a way for them to pay that—that's smooth. And I'm not a big fan of doing the whole chargeback thing. We had a plumbing company do that to us. Like we had a whole water line replaced at our house, and I called in the payment, and they said, "Hey, we're gonna charge you, you know, this percent because you're paying with a card." And I flipped. <laughs> I was like, "Are you kidding me? Really? Like that's the cost of doing business, people?" If you are going to offer credit card services then you've got to take the charge on your end you know so unless you want to encounter a customer like me on the other line which you don't uh don't do that whole chargeback thing i think that's bullshit you could disagree with me all you want but i personally think it's bullshit um how do you invoice some people don't even are not even really well versed in that you know, quite honestly, I've used this thing called simple invoices for years. Cost me 12 bucks a month. And you might say, well, God, that's 12 bucks a month. That adds up over the course of the year. Yeah. Once again, the cost of doing business. Unless you have a, a great way to document, you know, which you can very easily do for free in Google Docs or a Google spreadsheet, unless you have a real Smart way to do that. I recommend going with some kind of service. Doesn't have to be simple invoices. That's worked for me. And those services also easily provide Stripe and PayPal integration. So, and you can choose to turn it on or off if you want. Finding a reliable system to get paid is absolutely critical. If you're running a studio, you're probably running some kind of software like a QuickBooks kind of a thing. And you can turn on the integration for payment on that if you want. I know SharkBite in Oakland probably still does that because I haven't been over there in a while, but uh, they used to always bill me through there, which I thought was, you know, the smart thing to do. Just kind of, you know, your payment system integrated with your 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 money tracking system. I thought that was cool. Also, don't be afraid to call somebody if you haven't received payment for a while. You know, you don't have to be a jerk, but just, you know, hey, checking up on this. Uh, I sent you an invoice about three weeks ago. Uh, when can we expect payment? Now, once in a great while, depending on who you're dealing with, you will run into people that that may not pay you. And I've been very fortunate. I think I've only had uh, one or two people over time do that. Tony Maserati said this in his Working Class Audio episode where he was talking about his relationship with his manager and how they haven't had a contract. and. He said, "Yeah, I mean, what's the point? You know, if you screw me once, I'm out of there." And that's kind of how I feel about clients. It's like, you know, we can go on a handshake deal, but the minute you screw me, I'm I'm cutting you off absolutely. There will be no contact, there will be no more exchange of of stuff until you're paid up, and then once you're paid up, you're out of there because it's just that's not cool. All of you, no matter what discipline of audio you're in need to be compensated for your time. And especially when there is an agreement in place to, you know, you will do a set of work, you will send an invoice, you should get paid. And if you're not, cut ties with those people. Don't even, don't even give it a second thought. It's too much stress to deal with. If you are providing some kind of material goods like uh, tape for those of you that are still dealing a tape or whatever things you're providing that you're selling to the client and there's an upcharge that's cool, do an upcharge, but don't gouge them, you know? You go out, you pick up a, a reel of a tape or whatever you're picking up for them, uh, add a charge on there that is fair, don't be a jerk and gouge the hell out of them because that, that's just, you know, yes, it's a favor that you go and pick this stuff up and you should be compensated for that time investment, but, you know, don't get too greedy here, friends. Also, in some cases, you know, I haven't really been in this position, but I think many of you out there have probably had more experience with this than I have, where remember, in some cases, you can not only bill for yourself, but you can also bill for your gear. Now, don't get any crazy ideas. Don't try to go off the rails here with this. I think in industries where that's common, I think mostly in Those of you who are possibly working on film sets, I think you do some kind of deal like that. Feel free to reach out, Matt, at workingclassaudio.com and correct me if I'm wrong or kind of give me some clarification on that. But in some cases, that is a deal. And uh, make sure you do that. Make sure you are paid appropriately. Also, one last thing to consider before I sign off on this is deposits. You know, if you're dealing with somebody you've never dealt with before, might be a good idea to get a 50% deposit. You know, 50% to start, 50% on completion. Kind of, you know, gets the cash flow going, but also kind of gives you a little bit of insurance on an unknown client. Now, with my clients that I've known for many years, I don't do that. I just bill them when I'm done, and they pay me the full thing, and it's not a problem. So those are my thoughts on billing. And if you have any great ideas that you'd like to share with me, obviously, Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com. Send me some tips. Love to hear from you. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality, If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to WorkingClassAudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me, and we can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Steve Rosenthal. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Steve, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: You are held in high regard by two former WCA guests. That would be Rado Peter and Jessica Thompson, both who I think you know.
0: Yeah, both of them are really wonderful people and great engineers.
1: And I'll put a link in the show notes to both of their episodes for the audience. Yeah, they have both just spoken very, very glowingly about you. And in fact, Rado said because of your sponsorship of him, he was able to work as an audio engineer in the U S and that helped him really get his start.
0: Yeah. Well, he was really a remarkable kid and I was happy to help him. I just, I got to see him, believe it or not, a couple of weeks ago. He was came to the city to see one of his daughters who goes to school here. And so he he came to my place in Dumbo and we got to hang out for the first time in a long time. It was really great. And he's really great. And he has amazing ears. In the old days, he he worked in both places. He worked at the magic shop and he also worked at the living room. He was the first live sound engineer at the living room. My wife, Jennifer Gilson, and I also own this music club called The Living Room for 16 or 17 years, actually. And Reto was one of the first engineers there. And as for Jessica, it's one of my life's pleasures to have sort of helped her along the way. She's brilliant, will continue to be brilliant. I still work with her on projects. I worked with her on a project over the last couple of years. So she's just great.
1: I send any type of restoration work to her by default. People ask me, I say, go to Jessica.
0: Yeah, she really has great ears. We did this large project over the last couple of years restoring Er Errol Garner's legacy we put out i think maybe 15 Garner records over the course of the last two years including a big beautiful enormous box set last year and the mastering for those projects were split by Jessica did half the record and Michael Graves did the other half of the record he's another really brilliant mastering engineer he has a place in Altadena So, yeah, I love to be able to keep working with Magic Shop alum if I can.
1: Well, let's take it back a bit and get your backstory. Where did you grow up?
0: I'm from the city. I've lived in the city almost my whole life. I grew up in the Bronx. I lived in California when I was a young hippie for a while and then came back to live in the city and start to work in the music business here in the city.
1: How did you get involved in the world of audio?
0: So it's a kind of a, a silly story, but I had two friends who got a development deal. I don't know if they do those anymore. I wonder, but I guess YouTube is the new development deal, right? So mm-hmm. the record companies don't actually have to spend money anymore to develop artists. They just count how many YouTube hits they get. But, but back in the old days, They gave these development deals. So two of my friends from the Bronx got, I think, five or eight grand. I forgot what it was to make a record for CBS, I think it was. And one of the strange caveats was that the studio that they could work in was in Colorado. So I hitched a ride with them to this studio. It was owned by one of the musicians in this band, Firefall. He built a studio in Boulder. It was just beautiful. So I went with my two friends to Boulder and while watching them make this record, I really fell in love with being in the studio. I really, at that point, was a guitar player and a singer, but after spending a couple of weeks making a record with them, Gary and Matthew, I really fell in love with the idea of being in the room and being in the studio. So when I came back from there, uh, at that point, I was driving a cab in the city, Mm -hmm. so I was like, well, I got to figure out something else to do. So I decided to enroll in an engineering school. Now you have lots of choices, right? Of fabulous programs, Full Sail and NYU and Berkeley. I mean, there's just so many wonderful places where people can learn and young kids can learn how to be engineers. But back in the dark ages, there (laughs) weren't a lot of schools. So I went to this place called the Recording Institute of America. Yes. And it was basically a six-week course at a studio called ODO Studios, which was, was freaking fabulous. It was in the uh, Studio 54 building on 54th Street. It's just a beautiful place. And lots of people made great records there. And we would go once a week for like an hour and a half, and they would give us this tutorial about how to be engineers. So that was sort of how I first began to think about and be a part of the studio world. You were driving a
1: cab at what year was that?
0: 1974,
1: 1975. Wow. A very different town then.
0: Yeah. And I was a really bad cab driver. I mean, <laughs> I, I sucked. I was really bad. First of all, I was, you know, I weird to say this because now I'm a grown up and I don't do this, but in those days I was pretty stoned all the time. So I was really just the worst cab driver. And it was before GPS, right? So I got lost all the time. <laughs> I was just terrible. So I needed to, to figure out a way out of the cab driving business. And I decided to try to see if I could work in the in the music business.
1: So you went to this recording school. What came next? Where did you take
0: that? Well, so I tried to get a after I got my diploma. <laughs> diploma. Yeah, my diploma yeah. from there.
1: In air quotes.
0: I tried to get a job. And of course, I was way under, I, I, I didn't have enough experience to get a real job as a studio engineer, but I, I did go. I walked around and I went to all the great classic studios at the time to really try to find a job. Couldn't find one. And I probably went to 15, 20 places. I mean, back then there were many, many studios in Manhattan, many great places. So I, I walked to all of them. And, and tried to get an interview. And if I did try to get a job, really couldn't. And then one day I was sort of at the end of my rope and I just decided to go to the Yellow Pages. So I opened up the Yellow Pages and the first studio that was there was A1 Sound Studios. And I called up and I said, hi, I'm looking for a, a job as an engineer. And the guy on the other side of the phone said, well, why don't you come down tomorrow? And I was like, okay. okay. So I got on the Next day, I got on the train and I went down. It was a studio owned by Herb Abramson, who was one of the first founders of Atlantic Records. He was the engineer partner. You know, when they had the Atlantic Records office, right? Mm -hmm. And they made the records in the office. During the day, it was a business office. Then they would move the chairs and the desks away. And then they would make records. In those early days at Atlantic. Herb was the engineer. And he was also the third partner in Atlantic. And so he trained a whole bunch of really great engineers, Tom Dowd, Andrew Berliner, there's lots of really amazing people he trained. So I went down really just a shot in the dark. And I had an interview with Herb, and he was a really strange guy. He kind of looked like Captain Ahab. And he was really a strange guy. He was a dark guy. But he was a very knowledgeable guy. And so we got along and he decided to hire me. So I worked there at first for nothing, of course, as most studio kids did back in the day. And I worked for four or five months for nothing. And then I started complaining that I needed money to pay the rent. So then they started paying me a small stipend. And so Herb trained me to be an engineer. He trained me in what was called the Atlantic Record way. That's what he called it. And I could only use a certain amount of mics on the drums, three. Hmm. And there was a specific miking technique for the keyboards and for the organs and for the pianos. And that's how I learned to become an engineer. Do
1: you think in those days, people were more proprietary, like you mentioned, only mic the drums with three mics, put the mics at a certain spot. Do you think that that led to more definitive sounds or more regional based sounds across the country?
0: Well, I think that's a really great question. And I think the answer is probably yes. And I think people had their specific techniques about how they made these records and they were married to them. Mm-hmm. Herb would really be upset if I put more than three mics on the drum kit. And I would be like, I really want to hear the floor Tom. <laughs> I got a 60, I, we always like put a 67 over overhead. Right. Right. And then there would be a 47 for the kick drum and then that really strange sony condenser mic that he really liked uh, the other mic that he loved on the snare drum was those altec salt shakers yeah. have you ever seen one of those yeah he really loved that thing so yeah i think that's a, a really good point i mean certainly the atlantic records in the early days had a very very specific sound palette and i assume if you talk to a rec an engineer who was in Capitol the Capitol studios from the early days, I'm sure they had a specific way that they would do it as well.
1: Yeah. And I would imagine that at that time, maybe prior to that time, it was more of this kind of thing where the, the desk or the mics were not exactly ubiquitous across all the, all the studios, you know, maybe one studio had, you know, yeah. one kind of gear and another studio had another kind of gear. Whereas now it's like, we all have the same gear
0: yeah well herbie had bought the atlantic records console and it was this big black tube console with rotary pots Mm. and also the faders went in the opposite direction which something i experienced later in life when i bought my neve to to get the fader louder you move the fader down closer to you and the idea was that you were bringing the sound into the room and so that's why you were turning the fader down yeah so here in america of course we flipped it and because we'd flip everything, right? <laughs> you, you, you turn it up, right? right? But Herbie's console actually worked the same way, which was in that reversed way. So there was a round echo pots. He had an, a live echo chamber. Mm. And the machine I learned to engineer on was a Scully 12-track, one-inch Scully 12-track with toggle switches to go from sync to record. And so I literally would have to punch the play and record button at the same time as the toggle switch in order to get the machine to go into record. So suffice to say, after, you know, a few months, I learned how to punch. I could punch 16th notes because I learned mechanically how to do it. It wasn't visual. Now everybody's doing it visual.
1: A major physicality to it.
0: Yeah. And that was what it was like. So he had a a Scully and then he had a bunch of Ampex mono machines and two track machines that I would mix to. And then the other thing that he had was in one of his rooms, he had a record lathe. And at the end of the sessions, instead of making a tape copy, which we did at the magic shop or sending someone a file, which somebody does now, I cut a little disc. I would cut an acetate for the client and then they would take that home.
1: Wow. Very interesting. Did you ever get frustrated financially being there thinking, how am I going to survive?
0: Oh, Oh. hell yeah. Because at first I had to keep driving the cab. Mm. And as I made it pretty clear, I was a really bad cab driver. So eventually I got to the point where I just sat Herb down and I said, well, if you really want me to continue this, you need to pay me enough so that I can pay my rent and buy food and get an apartment and all that stuff. And so he agreed. So where did you go from there? So I worked there for a number of years. It was a really amazing apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And I learned I learned so much about the record business from him, not just the studio business, but the record business, because he had had a very interesting ride and he was an outsider and he remained an outsider.
1: What business things did did you take away from him?
0: Well, I think I I try to be happier than him. That's first of all, (laughs) because he was really not a happy guy. You know, the music business has fucked me over pretty seriously, right? number of times. And I, get, I can get really dark, but in remembering what it did to Herb and really changed him. So that was one lesson I learned. I, I wanted to be sort of more settled and, and a bit happier about being in the music business and, and riding the ups and downs. So I worked there for a number of years and then we sort of parted ways. We had an argument about a record that I engineered and didn't get credit on. It was a record by Otis Blackwell. I actually bought the record a few weeks ago at my local record store and my name is still not on it. So I, mm-hmm. I was really upset about that. I mean, I don't know, maybe it was silly, but I was upset. I engineered the record and I, you know, I wanted credit. So we got into an argument about that and and I left. It's a really great record, by the way. It's a record of Otis Blackwell. I don't know if any of your listeners know who he is, but he's the guy that wrote Return to Sender, Great Bill," Balls of Fire, Fever a whole bunch of Elvis wow. songs and little Richard songs. And this record that I made with him is called, these are my songs. Hmm. And it was basically Otis reclaiming the songs that he had written and sold for almost nothing. I mean, we all know how the Colonel worked with Elvis, right? Hold on. Let me see if I can find one. So here it is.
1: Otis Blackwell. These are my, what a, what a oh, look at Elvis on the cover.
0: Yeah, Elvis is on the cover, and he's on the the back, back. too.
1: Wow. That's kind of a, it's almost like a, it's a statement. It's almost like a middle finger to everybody going, hey, these are my songs, and this is a record of it.
0: Right, and his singing is fabulous, Mm. and he's great. And so this one has all shook up. Fever, Great Balls of Fire, Don't Be Cruel, "Searching," Breathless, Handyman, Return to Sender. I mean, he's an enormously gifted songwriter who the music business totally fucked. So it was fun to see that record. And the, the record store, I haven't seen one in many, 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 many years.
1: Yeah. You had to buy it.
0: Yeah, I had to buy it. I had bought buy it. You didn't feel very good about that as you left.
1: What's, what's the next step?
0: Well, then I went to work. I tried to get a job as a bigger studios, like more professional studios,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where they were doing newer records. Because with Herb, what I sort of did was R&B records. It's like old school R&B records with a full band, you know, piano, bass, drums, organ, background singers, lead vocalist, horns, and you would do it all at once. Mm. Maybe you would get another crack at the lead vocal if the singer wanted it. But basically, these, these are sort of like live documents, right? And that's how I learned how to engineer. So then I decided, well, why don't I go to work, try to go to work at a place where i could work on modern records so i went wandering around and i got an interview at a and and at that point in in the mid 70s a and was a really really amazing place lots of great records were being made there and so i got an interview and they uh, yeah they hired me but they wouldn't let me in the room so they sent me down to the dungeon and i spliced wires and fixed cables. So I did that for a number of months and then yeah, it didn't really sit well with me. So I kind of went upstairs and quit, but yeah, so I worked there. It was not a happy thing, but it, it's funny. Cause I learned a lesson there, right. That I put in action at the magic shop. Like I would let the interns sit in the back of the control room in the magic shop. If the client was okay with it, mm. I didn't mandate it. Right. And say, you have to let the intern But if someone was there making a record and it was okay with them for the intern to be in the room, then they could sit in the back on a chair. They used to have a chair in the back corner under the lights and they they could sit. Obviously, they were not supposed to talk or interact with the clients. And a number of times we had to literally walk them out of the room and walk them out of the studio because they started making comments about which guitar solos they liked. (laughs) But 95% or 98% of the kids that were there, they were great and they learned a lot. And it was really a great way for them to be in the room with enormously talented people and just watch, learn by watching instead of by talking. So that's a lesson I learned from A&R where they were so nasty to me that when I got to own my own joint, I kind of flipped that. And I was like, well, I'm going to let them in. And if a client said, I really don't want this kid in here, he's making me upside or you know, whatever, then I would say, okay, just come down to the basement and hang out. But the mentorship that went on in large format studios is a really amazing thing. And it's something that I hope people who have studios now continue to do. I know that's how I learned. And I know that's how many of the people that worked for me over the years learned as well.
1: So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. How long from between leaving AR and and the magic shop, how much time is in that gap there?
0: Long time. Maybe eight years, 10 years. So after after I couldn't get a job at a regular studio, I built a studio with one of my friends from the Bronx, mm-hmm. Gary Dorfman. We, we actually, I shouldn't say we built it we bought a fully constructed studio on 17th Street in Manhattan. It was owned by a really nice guy named John Rhodes. And Gary and I got all of our money together, borrowed a bunch of money, and we bought this studio. It was very small. It was in a loft, but it had a separate live room and a separate control room. We couldn't afford to buy the gear that he had. He had 24-channel gear. We couldn't afford that. So we put in 8-track stuff. So we had a, a whole camp set up. But we did have a live room to make records in and that place was called dreamland and we opened that up in 1978 i think it was and i stayed there until 1984. for the first years i lived with my first wife i lived on the other side of the loft it was really great oh my god it was so much fun i used to do i used to get up have a cup of coffee and do the sessions in my bathrobe really I did many sessions in my bathroom. It was just fucking great. So half the place or 60% was the studio. And then the other 40% was a living loft.
1: And when we say you bought it, you bought the business or did you actually buy the physical space?
0: Well, we couldn't afford to buy the floor. But we bought the fixtures, it's called in New York City talk. You sort of buy the fixtures that were built into the space. Mm. So John has spent a bunch of money doing this construction to build these rooms. And so we bought basically those fully constructed rooms from him.
1: And then you rent the space.
0: And then we rented the space. Call it buying the fixtures.
1: Buying the fixtures. Okay. Right. That's a great way for prior studio owners to get their money back out of the out of the deal.
0: Yeah. So when you when you bail, you can just turn around and try to sell it if you're lucky. If the landlord doesn't steal the fucking place.
1: Late 70s, early 80s. Okay. So that's around the time you said you had Tascam gear. So TIAC had, I think, transitioned into Tascam gear. So we were seeing a lot of eight tracks, quarter inch, half inch. Yeah. These were
0: half inch, half inch eight tracks, 80 8s. Then later they made 38, 48s, and 58s. And then otari made one that's right i've been working on some sonic youth archive tapes and i i got a really good otari half inch that i just used to make these transfers because they they had gone into a studio at some point to make a track demos so the two manufacturers basically were otari and Taskam. for those of us who couldn't afford studers this is sort of where we went yeah and the gear worked great and We made a lot of great punk rock records and a lot of new wave records that was kind of the clientele that the studio had
1: did you learn any valuable lessons out of that experience
0: yeah i mean it was amazing to be responsible for the studio and the rent and the upkeep of the gear it's a big transition when you go from a hired person hired staff and you leave at one o'clock in the morning and then you're done until you got to go back there at noon, right? You don't have to worry about all this other stuff. But when you own your own studio, it's completely different. So that's a really hard lesson that my partner and I learned really quickly. You have to make the rent. You have to get paid con ed. There's things that have to be taken care of. As much as you want to use the studio as your own private playpen, you have to figure out a way how to make a living.
1: How did your living... That you were making compared to when you were at the prior situations
0: it was much better i was a much better manager of the studio i think than herbie was and we were busy we did a lot of great things and fran and i ran a record company out of there and we had a new wave record label we put out a whole bunch of records we were busy it was a really fun you know the internet allows for independent artists Mm -hmm. to somehow have an entrance way into the music business, hopefully, because the idea of the internet, right, is that you can create a song and then you post it and holy shit, people love it. And then more people love it. And and then people get interested in you as an artist. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a viable path for independent artists. It was much more difficult in the late seventies and early eighties, but there was a really potent independent punk rock scene and independent new wave scene where people were making their own records and manufacturing their own records and distributing their own records and saying, fuck you to the major label system. That was a a very potent part of that time period, both here and in England. There was a lot of music made that way.
1: Do you think that that happened as a result of these lower cost tape machines coming out?
0: Yeah, completely. I think there's something to be said for the way technology informs the art and the music that gets created from the specific kind of technologies. So I've been doing a lot of work for Les Paul. I've been five or six years now, I've been working for the Les Paul Foundation. And through Les and and his amazing developments, I've learned so much about how technology and music are married. And it follows through to further decades and it followed through to what you just asked about in the late seventies and early eighties. And now it clearly follows through now to the bedroom studios where everybody has Pro Tools or Garage GarageBand or whatever it is that they want to use and are making records in their, in their bedrooms. So yeah. there is a complete connection between technology and the music that comes from that technology.
1: I think you might agree that some of that technology, its imprint, will find its way into the music itself, whether it's Simmons drums, the Lynn drum, auto tune.
0: Right. Or sound on sound. Think about Les's invention, yeah. right? But Les is the first one to overdub, right? He invents sound on sound. So just the concept of overdubbing music comes out of Les's head. And that's something that we all still do, mm-hmm. we're all still doing that. And yeah, I mean, I think the technology, look, did I make too many records in the 80s where the the gated reverb on the snare drum was too loud? You bet. I did. I know I did. And, you know, you get married to the sounds of the moment and you want to imprint those sounds on your music. But sometimes that's kind of goofy. You really need to make your own path and not be so married to the fashionable thing, Mm -hmm. right? The sonic fashionable thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm as guilty of that as anybody. In the 70s, I probably put too much tape slap on things.
1: <laughs> Sonic fashion trends.
0: Yeah. yeah. And they're, you're much younger than me, so you probably know a lot more about what those specific things are right now. But yeah, it's a funny thing how married creation, the creation of the music is to the tools that you use to create them.
1: Yeah.
0: So that... If you think about it, and I, I do this with an artist that I produce, I tend to like to make the newer records that I make. I, I just, last year I made a record with Woody Guthrie's grandson, Cold mm. Quest. It's like a bluegrass record. He's really great. He's got a great Brooklyn bluegrass band. Tom Camuso mixed it. He's a an ex-magic shop guy who owns his own studio in Brooklyn. It's a really great place. I go there all the time. When it came to making the record, I was like, let's play the record and sing the record and then we'll fix the things that we need to fix but instead of going okay i'm going to do it one instrument at a time let's do the drums first and we'll add the bass then we'll add the dobro i was like that's not sort of the way i like to make the records i sort of like to make the records it's it's sort of like a picture it's like a document of what the artist is doing of course you have to have artists that are worthy Of getting their picture taken
1: (laughs) right right
0: and i get it i get some people are young and they're new and they're figuring it out and so they got to do stuff a million times i get that but just for me personally i tend to like things that are more documents as opposed to studio creations it's funny for a guy that owned a freaking recording studio for almost 30 years right (laughs) like i owned a world-class recording studio where People made amazing records for almost 30 years. But just personally, my taste tends to be more like Lomax. Like, So I worked for Alan Lomax for many, many years. And I worked on the Alan Lomax collection for many, many, many years. And I think that had a really big impact on how I make records. Even if I'm making a record with a a young band, this notion of documenting as opposed to studio creation is something that I'm really interested in.
1: Just to finish off on the thought of the technology, depending on the format things are recorded to, that has its own character, whether it's a, a four track cassette or a half inch eight track. All of those have their own, once again, imprint and help to cement that performance, create that document with a very particular character on it, just like, you know, maybe a wax cylinder did back in the day.
0: Yeah. I think that's very true. I mean, one of the things that I love to do with all the restoration work that I do, and I think both Jessica and Michael agree, is that when you're doing the restoration work, you need to leave some of the original sonic artifacts in the project. It helps you to learn when it was made in an honest way. And not all of it, is unnecessary or sonically abhorrent
1: yeah there's sonic cues
0: yeah it's like that's a good way to say it's like a it's like a historical cue to say okay this is when this record was made and yes it had certain limitations but you know it's funny because people are still very much enamored with records that got played as opposed to studio created yeah and they're are still lots of rock bands and soul bands and blues bands and jazz bands who go and play in the room.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I know the music industry is plug-in based now. Like most of the money that the manufacturers get is about software. Oh yeah. I mean, it's not really like going to AES. It's not like we sit there and there's like 30 console manufacturers. So I get that there's a real financial imperative for the manufacturers. hmm To push this whole software version of the studio. But I think it's good for people to look at different alternatives to that. Yeah.
1: I always find it intriguing. I've got a very small vinyl collection and most of the stuff I collect is jazz stuff and when there were performances done at say clubs, to me, it's like a little time capsule and I don't even think about the audio technology involved. I just like, look at that record, listen to it and think, wow. I'm time traveling here to that point in the fifties at this club in New York where this famous jazz person was doing their thing. And listen, it sounds like what there's 60 people in there at most that, that just intrigues me to no end to hear that stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fabulous. And it sounds like you like it. It's like, it's okay. I should say that, the things that we can fix that interfere with the performance, mm-hmm. we should fix. So, for example, like an old, a lot of the Garner stuff, we really went at the wow and flutter on the early piano recordings. Right? And sometimes we would use the Plangian process and process. Sometimes we'd use isotope. We really went after it because the wow and flutter compromises this piano tone. Yeah. So if I can fix that, I'm going to try to fix, it. because as you just outlined, like if you were sitting in the club, your experience of hearing that garner or, or whoever it is you're hearing playing, there would be no wow and flutter in between his piano and your ears. Right. So that's an artifact that if we can get rid of, because it's compromising the listening experience, we should. And And we work really hard on that kind of stuff.
1: The plangent process. So God, is it Jamie? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've I've hung with Jamie a bit, but for the audience, could you explain a little bit about how that technology works? Because it works off of the is it the bias tone?
0: Yeah. So it works off of the bias of the tape. So in order for a tape to be recorded, it has to get the bias energy recorded on the tape. So it's usually up around 80K or 90K. And him and a and a couple of brilliant technicians scientists really developed this program where they can track the bias. He has a special head that you use. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a stereotape, it actually has a third component to the head where it records this bias frequency. And then he has proprietary software, which helps track the bias and read the bias and keep the bias stable. Because what's happening with the wow and flutter. Yeah. Is that the machine is speeding up and slowing down within time. I don't want to say over time, it's like almost within time, right? So within a five second chunk, it could be slowing down and speeding up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so his software is able to read that and fix it. And so if the bias was 92,000 Hertz, and sometimes he marries it to the current, the 60 cycle hum current, because that's always 60 cycles. So if you can settle down the bias, you settle down the wow and flutter. And I don't know how the isotope version of it works. Mm -hmm. I know that they've come up with something in their new isotope thing that's very similar.
1: And would, instead of 60 hertz, would it be 50 if you were in Europe? Do I have that right?
0: If you're in Europe, it would be a 50 hertz tone that you'd be married to. Okay. Okay. So. It's one of those tools which I've used a number of times now. I used it on a Woody Guthrie project, the wire recording that we did, mm-hmm. where we transferred and restored a, the only live concert of Woody Guthrie, which was made on a wire recorder, was really rough, really hard to deal with. We used it on that. We used it on a whole bunch of these corner things that we put out over the last years. So I guess the answer is that if it's something that I feel like gets in the way of what the original listening experience was, mm-hmm. then I'll try to fix it. But uh, I, you know, I'm not going to eliminate hiss.
1: I want to come back to the restoration thing in a bit, but could you lead us up to the creation of the magic shop?
0: Yeah. So I left Dreamland in 85, four, and then I started working at this studio called The Music Farm which was partly owned by Reader and Bill who owned a rental company called The Toy Specialist. It was like a gear rental company.
1: Mm.
0: So you if you wanted to rent a 47 or an 87 or a new synth or any kind of gear, tape machines, whatever, you would rent from them. There were a whole number of them, even into the early O's, I think, they were functioning. So they had a place and, I, and they, it was attached to a studio. And so I started running a studio there. And then at that point I decided I had enough clients and I was busy enough that maybe I should have another studio again. So that's when Fran and I tried to work out a way to start a new studio. So that would be 1988.
1: Okay. And that new studio would be the magic shop.
0: Right. And then, so that studio became the magic Shop. I spent a long time literally walking up and down from Below Houston, to where the towers were, all the way from the west side from the water, all the way to the east side. I probably spent three months walking up and down, looking for spaces. I knew I wanted a place that had high ceilings because I wanted to have a great drum room. Uh, you know, I wanted to make rock records, and you need a good drum room to make rock records. That you do. So I wanted I wanted high ceilings, and so I, I immediately drew me down to the Soho and try back. Well, I think it was before it was called Tribeca. I don't know what the fuck it was called. Then. <laughs> and down by where the two towers were. And I spent a lot of time walking around trying to find an appropriate place. And it wasn't so much reading like ads in the village voice and stuff for lofts and stuff. It was literally going and there would be a sign out. I mean, literally, it was a sign out on Crosby Street where the magic shop was. And <laughs> I went in and I talked to the to the renters and of the ground floor and actually Charles at that point on the ground floor, the second floor in the basement. And it took a long search to try to find someplace that I thought was appropriate. And then I decided I was, if I got a chance to build a studio, I would build an old school studio. I found a partner and his name was George Hirsch. He was a really wonderful man who helped finance the studio. Sadly, he wasn't in my life very long. He passed away. In 91, but he was really an amazing, an amazing guy. And without him, there would be no magic shop. But I decided I, I wanted to build a large format room. And also I decided that I wanted to build it around a classic console. Because during my work with the toy specialist gear, I fell in love with the 1073s and the 1079s and the 1066s. I had a choice of any mic pre. Mm-hmm to use. And it became really clear to me, this stuff is taste really, but it became very clear to me that the mic pre's and EQs that had the most presence, and and were these early Neve ones. So I decided to, that I would build a studio around a classic Neve. If you think about the time period, though, that was during the time period where they were being destroyed. So they were being trashed, people would take the EQs out, trash the consoles, and then you'd have an SSL and then A rack of Neves behind you. There's lots of places that still do that. But anyway, it was very fashionable in those days to destroy the consoles. But I decided I I wanted one. And that was still intact.
1: And because of that, of people trashing them in that way, separating the, the, the EQs and the pres out, were the prices favorable at that time to buy a Neve console?
0: Well, you had to really, they were expensive. Of course nowhere near what they are now but they were expensive but the hardest part was finding one that was in good enough shape right and that had been preserved because here i here we are in 1988 i'm looking for a console from 1972 73s i ended up with one from 1971 so it's already 17 or 18 years old so there's a question of how well it was preserved and if it was taken care of I always say that owning one of those is sort of like owning a 60s Thunderbird or something, you know, or a 50s Thunderbird. You really have to take good care of it. Yeah, I mean, it was a question of finding one that was intact and with the right series EQ. So I decided to go on an Eve hunt, which I did. And I, I went to England to try to find a console. And yeah, and I found the one that came to the studio.
1: A little more challenging in those days to get the information. It's not like you could just Google it or go online. and You had to do your research and know people.
0: Yeah, it was really about that kind of networking. And it took a long time to find the console. And I I bid on a couple of here in the States. And then I was like, you know what? I should just go there. So I went and I didn't have one to look at. I just started another search over there. And, And lucky, I found Alexander Fulcher. And he had this studio in the East End of London. He had bought this console directly from the BBC when it was decommissioned and then put it in his studio in the East End. And he actually had two consoles, two vintage Neves. I wanted this wraparound one because I was familiar with this series of EQs and he really didn't want to sell it to me. He wanted me to buy the other one. Not that it wasn't fabulous. It was freaking fabulous. But I wanted this one and I just hung around and was persistent about it. And then eventually he agreed to sell it to me. I had to ship it here by boat.
1: That's a whole undertaking in itself.
0: Yeah. i didn't, I, mean, I didn't know Jack really. So I learned a lot. I learned that lorry in England is not the same as truck. So I hired a lorry to get the console from the studio to the shipping yard where it was going to be packed. We were going to take the modules out of it and pack it. Problem was, the lorry was not a truck. It was a flatbed that had no roof. And as you know, it likes to rain in England.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, what can I tell you? I <laughs> kind of made it up. Just kind of made it up as I went along. Oh, my
1: goodness. Did you get it there free of rain? or?
0: Well, it literally, it was gray, murky, cloudy, and started to rain when we got to the airport. Luckily, we got it. I mean, we had it wrapped and all that stuff and got it inside. And then it was shipped. And then they wouldn't let me pick it up at customs because they thought there were drugs in it. So they broke after this amazing packing job that we did. And oh, Jesus, I forgot all about this. Wow, I haven't thought about this in a long time. So it was packed really, really well so that it could make the voyage, right? And then it came to the city and at customs they broke open the case because they thought there were drugs in it they couldn't figure out what the fuck it was Hmm. so i had a whole bunch of calls from customs and i had to go down there to try to explain to them what this thing was so then i got it from customs that took a while and then we literally carted it into the magic shop it hadn't been built yet it was just a big empty space and we put the cart in the case wood crate down where the console was going to live. And then we built the studio around it. Amazing. Our
1: friends over at Kali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for Steve Rosenthal here on the Working Class Audio podcast. That is the end of part one. Make sure to catch part two next week. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hope you enjoyed the interview. And uh, remember, guests are the fuel that drives this show. So if you have a guest suggestion, go to workingclassaudio.com and there'll be a guest suggestion form. Fill it out, send it over. We'll consider your guest and we'll either have them on or we won't and we'll just have to see what happens, right? But that's all for me today. want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plough on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the great Chuck Smith there at the beginning of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Reach out if you have any questions, Matt at WorkingClassAudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware,